One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the first part on the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871, a titanic conflict between the French and Germans which would have profound consequences for the balance of power in Europe. My name is Karl Rylott and over the last approximately 200 episodes I have gone through the history of Europe chronologically, from the ancient Greeks onwards. I focus on certain battles and wars, but the aim of each narrative is to place each conflict in the context of the grand sweep of European history. One of the most beautiful cities in Europe, the French capital city of Paris, is packed full of historic treasures, originating from medieval times to the modern age. It is famous for its wide avenues flanked with imposing buildings, the Avenue de Champs-Élysées and many others, an impressive square such as the Place de la Nation, Place de la Concorde or Place de la Bastille. The look of the city is largely the work of one man, George Eugene Haussmann, who reshaped much of it in the 1850s and 1860s. Haussmann cut a swathe through the cramped and chaotic labyrinth of slum streets in the city centre, knocked down 12,000 buildings, cleared space for the Palais Garnier, home of the Opera Nationale de Paris, and Les Halles Marketplace, and linked the new train terminals with his long, wide and straight avenues. The new streets came with trees and broad pavements, along which sprung up many cafes, and soon to be filled with artists and artisans. The work was not without its critics. Some contemporaries complained how he ripped the historic heart out of Paris, driving his boulevards through the city slums. They also criticised the motives for the changes, which were in part to help the French army crush popular uprisings. After the streets were widened, it certainly became much more difficult for rebellious Parisians to barricade them, in the same way they had done in rebellions of past years, such as in 1832 and 1848, and immortalised in Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables. The man who commissioned the work was Napoleon III, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte,
who came to power at the end of the revolutionary year of 1848 and was elected emperor three years later. Napoleon was one of the first leaders of Europe to learn how to exploit the public mood for his own political benefit. To help with this, he made good use of his famous uncle's legacy. The name of Napoleon already represented in French people's minds a programme of order, religion, popular welfare and national dignity. The emperor tried diligently to implement these ideas, curbing socialism, mending fences with the Catholic Church and creating jobs through liberal economic policies. Above all, he promised to revive the international standing of his country, for which he achieved some success in the Crimean War of 1853-1856 against Russia, and in the Italian War of Unification of 1859. France, however, made few concrete gains from these adventures, and earned Napoleon a reputation as a disturber of the European peace. In spite of the rather authoritarian and socially conservative sides to his regime, the economy of France was booming. Boosted by the discovery of gold in California and Australia and a major shift to steam power, world trade was thriving. A rapid increase in the railway network transformed communications and kick-started the coal and metallurgical industries. And the country's volume of trade tripled, helped by a free trade treaty signed with Britain in 1860. Economic prosperity also owed much to the development of banks, which offered credit more widely than ever before. Savers now deposited with financial institutions, rather than hoarding wealth at home, which played a major part in financing national growth. Abroad, Napoleon III doubled France's colonial holdings, most notably in Indochina, Central and West Africa and the Pacific. In 1869, his wife, the Empress Eugène, opened the Suez Canal, which immediately offered ships a more direct route between the North Atlantic and Northern Indian Oceans via the Mediterranean and Red Seas. Yet Napoleon was unable to wrest the initiative in world trade and colonisation from Britain, and an ill-conceived plan of his to establish an empire in Mexico, with Maximilian of Habsburg at its head, resulted in a humiliating fiasco. The domestic situation was never easy, and his intervention in Italy ended up displeasing all different sides of society, upsetting Catholics by allowing the forcible incorporation of the Papal States into the new Italy, yet alienating liberals by sending French troops to defend the Pope in the Vatican. Public opinion was emerging as a major political force. As press censorship was relaxed and laws on public meetings were progressively relaxed, a Republican opposition began to coalesce against the rule of the Emperor. After the economy started to experience problems in the late 1860s, discontent with the regime grew, and in elections in 1869, opposition parties won 40% of the vote. Now in his late 60s, Napoleon was not the force he once was. Writes Geoffrey Vavreau in his book on the Franco-Prussian War, he was, quote, stooped, fat, tired and chronically ill. Once spry and full of ideas, 
he was now dull and listless, frequently drugged to alleviate the pain of his gout, gallstones and hemorrhoids, or away from Paris altogether, taking the spa waters. Above all, the issue of Germany was on the minds of Frenchmen. As described in the previous podcast, the Battle of Königgrätz in 1866 was a major turning point in European history. The defeated Austrian Emperor, Franz Josef, was compelled to surrender the authority his Habsburg dynasty had for centuries exercised in Germany and to give the Prussians a free hand. The North German Confederation may have appeared superficially as the continuation of the former German Confederation, but was in reality simply an instrument for Prussian dominance, used to bestow a sense of legitimacy for a power grab. All northern German states not directly annexed by Prussia were put in the new confederation in which Berlin assumed control of their foreign and military affairs and most of their internal ones as well. A solid block of Prussian territory stretched now between France and Belgium in the west to Russian Lithuania in the east. The elder French statesman Adolphe Thiers complained in Parliament that Napoleon had allowed the consolidation of Germany to happen, and thus the establishment of a major power, quote, young, active, bold and devoured by ambition, quote, right on France's eastern border. Before the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, Napoleon expected a roughly even fight between the two sides, Austria and Prussia. He had boasted he would use the conflict to enlarge France and to wring concessions from the two German powers. His frustration afterwards was palpable. He tried to acquire the German fortress of Luxembourg in 1867, arguing it was due reward for France's, quote, benevolent neutrality. But the Prussian leader, Otto von Bismarck, refused point-blank, much to the public humiliation of the Emperor. The crisis was resolved by an international conference that guaranteed Luxembourg's status as an independent principality, but it could easily have led to a French declaration of war. Mines were bored into the city's fortress, known as the Bock, and exploded, leaving the picturesque ruin that remains to this day. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Prussia and the North German Confederation combined had a population of about 30 million, not far off France's 38 million, and was growing more rapidly, and also had an army one-third larger than France's. Unable to stop Prussia's spread across northern Germany, Napoleon vowed they would not have the south as well. The remaining independent German states of Bavaria, Württemberg, Baden and Hesse-Darmstadt. These states contained an additional 8 million Germans, 200,000 well-trained troops and substantial resources. They would also give the Prussians a flanking position on the French frontier. So the major strategic trigger for the Franco-Prussian War was the question of control of southern Germany. Prussia's ambitions to further expand the newly unified German state against France's attempts to prevent this from happening. In the South German states, public opinion was vehemently opposed to a closer union. There was outrage when it was revealed that, after the Austrian War of 1866, the South German governments had signed away their autonomy in treaties with the North German Confederation. The Prussian government, led by Bismarck, explored plans to create a Southern Confederation. However, mutual distrust among southern states, especially Bavaria, made such an agreement impossible. Resistance to a plan to integrate the southern states gradually through a customs arrangement revealed the depth of opposition to closer union. In 1869, parliamentary elections in Bavaria and Württemberg produced majorities opposed to unification. In Bavaria, in particular, the Catholic clergy agitated from the pulpits against a closer union with the Protestant-dominated North, circulating petitions that attracted hundreds of thousands of signatures. Those opposed to union depicted Prussia as not only anti-Catholic, but authoritarian, repressive, militaristic and a threat to southern economic interests. Bismarck therefore chose the security threat from France as a catalyst to unification. Francophobia still lingered from the Napoleonic Wars when the French had taxed and looted the German states and forced 250,000 Germans into French military service. An opportunity to exploit friction with France arose over the question of succession for the Spanish crown. After the deposition of Queen Isabella in 1868, the new government in Madrid identified a relative of the Prussian reigning family, Prince Leopold of Hohenzollern, to take her place. Both Leopold's father and the King of Prussia, Wilhelm I, were at first strongly opposed, but Bismarck managed, through patient persuasion, to secure the consent of both men. In July 1870, news that the candidature had been formalised prompted a wave of nationalist outrage in France. The French considered Spain as part of its sphere of influence and brought back for them centuries of old fears of encirclement. Across Paris and the provinces, the cry went up that the Prussians were now not only on the other side of the Rhine, but also south of the Pyrenees as well. The French ambassador to Berlin was dispatched to the spa town of Bad Ems, where King Wilhelm I of Prussia was on summer vacation. Since the king responded in a conciliatory way and accepted that Leopold must renounce his claim, 
the matter should have ended there. But the French made a serious tactical error when they sent the ambassador back to the emperor to demand a further and more far-reaching assurance that the Prussian king would never again support the candidacy. This was a step too far, and Wilhelm politely refused. When Bismarck received the king's telegram, immortalised in history as the Ems telegram, summarising the substance of the meeting, he sought an opportunity to incite the French. He released a slightly edited version of the text, where a few words were removed, but none added, in which the refusal was made to appear as a brusque rebuff. This apparent insult was enough for Napoleon III, in search for a foreign success to boost his fading popularity, to issue a declaration of war. Not dissimilar to the situation with Austria four years prior, Bismarck had succeeded in goading his adversary into actions in a way which made them look like the principal aggressor. The fact that Napoleon had long been seen as a disturber of peace made it natural to assign him responsibility for war. This persuaded neutral powers such as Britain to avoid getting involved and also in southern Germany even many who were sceptical of German unity now took sides against France. Bismarck had secured the necessary popular mandate for a national war against their hereditary enemy. German states, both from north and south, carried along on a wave of national enthusiasm lined up behind Prussia. Unfortunately for the French, they therefore blundered into a war for which she was not ready and had no allies. Austria, still recovering from the War of 1866, was absorbed by the question of domestic reform. And in a similar way, the Danes, while wishing to reverse recent losses, were naturally wary of provoking the hostility of Prussia, for fear of the consequences. And as for the Russians, they were won over by Bismarck's promise that he would support St Petersburg's attempt to revive some of the most burdensome restrictions from the Crimean peace settlement, such as the right to sail military ships in the Black Sea. In military terms, the Prussians were well-placed, better indeed than most contemporaries were aware. They had a larger, better-trained and more disciplined army than the French. They also outperformed them in tactics and infrastructure. As in the war with Austria, the superiority of the Prussian military organisation was to prove crucial. The chain of command through the Prussian general staff was far more decisive and effective. French mobilisation was slow and disorganised, and by the time of the first encounters was able to bring to the front about 250,000 men, many of them inadequately armed and supplied. The Prussians and German allies, on the other hand, were able to deploy 320,000 battle-ready troops to the border. In addition, tens of thousands of reservists were streaming in behind them. Part of the reason for the disparity was the differing models of recruitment in Prussia and France. As described by Geoffrey Vavreau, quote, Whereas the Prussians relied on universal conscription, raking every abled-bodied 20-year-old into the army for three years, then releasing him into the reserves for four additional years, and the Landwehr or National Guard for five more, the French preferred long service, professional soldiering, employing no reserves and recruiting fewer men 
at keeping them longer, end quote. The Prussian success against Austria in 1866 in no way led to complacency. Instead, they addressed areas where they fell short, so that, for example, the antique smooth-bore field guns that had performed poorly against the Austrian infantry were phased out and replaced by rifled cannon incorporating the latest technology. Enormous effort was also expended on improving the tactical deployment of artillery in the best way to support their infantry. The weaponry of the two sides was more even, or if anything the French had an advantage. In 1866 the Prussians had consistently caused about five times as many casualties as they received thanks to their more advanced and more fast-loading rifle, the needle gun. To counter this, the French had quickly developed a new rifle. Nicknamed the Chasseport after its inventor, this was an improvement on the needle gun with a much longer range. It was also lighter and could be fired more rapidly, 8 to 15 rounds a minute. Their bullets were also smaller and more powerfully charged, giving them more penetrative power. In addition, the French introduced the world's first machine gun, known as the Mitrailleuse, a small cannon used by a four-man crew that could fire in rapid succession up to 100 or even 200 rounds per minute. Perhaps the main difference between the Prussians and the French was their manoeuvrability. French manoeuvres in the field suffered from lack of effective leadership or coordination, while the Emperor's well-meaning interference only made things worse. Meanwhile, the chief of Prussian staff, Helmut von Moltke, realised the importance of the willingness of troops to move. The secret of our success against Austria, he said, is in our legs. Victory derives from marching and manoeuvring. Whereas French efforts at tactical offensives lacked conviction, the Prussians had fine-tuned their tactics, throwing more skirmishes out at front to cover the advanced, strengthening the flanks and working in smaller units. The greater flexibility of the German armies and willingness to go on the offensive meant their enemy were often at first unsure if the troops in front of them were a group of skirmishers, a single battalion or a full frontal assault. The Prussians also reformed their cavalry units after 1866, with much less emphasis on heavy cavalry. Rather than deploy in great masses, the Prussian horse were given a new role to be distributed among the infantry who they supported, and also used more for reconnaissance. One area the French had superiority was the navy, but they failed to make good use of it during the war. You've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. If you like the show and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com stroke history Europe. Thank you for all your support. Another great way of helping is by giving a, a good review on iTunes or wherever you found the podcast. I hope you can join me next time for the next instalment on the Franco-Prussian War. Until then, all the best and goodbye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.